Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, author, coach, and speaker, Andy Grant. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss something I had not even heard of until my guest reached out to me, orthorexia. If you are a successful, driven man yet feel empty inside, I invite you to book a complimentary clarity call with me. Go to theandygrant.com slash talk while I still have open time for some one-on-one work. Go to theandygrant.com slash talk because you are meant to be fully alive. My guest today is Jason Wood. Jason is turning his own battle with orthorexia, anxiety, and OCD into a mission to raise awareness around men and mental health. Most men do not talk openly about how hurt and fearful they truly are. Jason shares the challenges of healthy choices going so far that they become unhealthy. We explore the stigmas that keep men quiet around mental health and eating disorders, Jason shares some tools and techniques that helped him the most and the need for more men to live from their hearts. Let's do it. Hello, Jason. Welcome to Real Men Feel. Hey, Andy. It's great to be here. I had not heard of today's subject matter until you reached out to me. And even after you reached out, I kept looking it up. And even before we started, I was like, am I saying this right? So <laughs> let's jump right in. So what is orthorexia? Yeah. So uh, you're in the same boat as I was because I had never even heard of this thing and I was months into recovery. So orthorexia is basically an addiction, an obsession with healthy eating. It's not been classified yet as a formal eating disorder. However, they're kind of just figuring out the diagnostic criteria right now. But basically what it is, is an individual just becomes fixated on eating healthy foods, clean foods. They're no longer worried necessarily about weight or body image. Their concerns lie more with preventing disease, with just being as healthy as they possibly can be. And so in my case, I felt like I never really met the typical eating disorders that you hear of with anorexia or bulimia. So that's why I pretty much continued my diet as is because I didn't really realize that there was an issue going on. Little did I understand that orthorexia had complete control. I was ordering what orthorexia wanted me to eat when we'd go out to a restaurant or buying groceries. Everything had to be clean. Everything had to be healthy, organic. It just became an obsession of mine. So it's different from anorexia because there's not a, a body image associated. It, you, like you think you're being healthy. Right, right. And there can be cases where, and in my case too, where it kind of plays the line there a little bit because you will be concerned about body image. And at points I was, I was worried about what I look like, but the driving factor was not related to body image or weight, unlike anorexia and bulimia. So could you be orthorexic and a binge eater? Could you, if, if you're overeating on healthy things, would that fall into this as well? Yeah, yeah, very much. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're, uh, they haven't developed the formal criteria yet for the diagnosis, because that can be the case. I've talked to individuals who have eaten 30 bananas for breakfast every morning because they've seen somewhere on a blog or a health influencer has told them that eating 30 bananas a day for breakfast is the healthy thing to do for your body. So yeah, in that case, you can binge on healthy foods and be suffering from orthorexia. Hmm. 
So how did this show up in your life? Is this something that you've been dealing with for years and years and didn't know what it was or just only as an adult or, or what? Yeah, so I kind of developed an unhealthy relationship with food at a young age. I had battled obesity as a child and uh, lost the weight in high school. And it was at that point that I joined Weight Watchers, took the weight off, and that kind of became my crowning achievement. That's what I placed value in. It gave me a sense of control. And then I hit a turbulent patch in my life, losing my parents at a young age, going through evictions, arrest. It was just kind of a rough time. So I always thought, sought control through my diet, through eating. So there was already kind of that seed planted. Well, then fast forward to 2015, I'm 29 years old. Life seems to be going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I get some concerning symptoms, go to the doctor and realize that I'm on the brink of colorectal cancer, which was the same disease that took my dad from me at a young age. And that just scared me to death. I wanted to do anything I could to live as long as I could. And I immediately went back to food. So that's when it became that obsession with being healthy because I went online and, you know, you see sugar causes cancer, red meat causes cancer. And suddenly food group after food group started getting cut out of my diet because I was just trying to live longer. So I say it a lot now since I've launched the blog, but I was literally killing myself to live longer. Mm. Wow. The health aspects of it, the healthy, the desire to be healthy is it's kind of like it's rooted in fear. There's, it's an emotional underpinning to your actions. Yeah, I made a funny meme the other day and it was, how do you explain to someone that you're scared of the loaf of bread on the table? Because that's what I dealt with. It was like watching a horror movie when I would go out to a restaurant because I would open up that menu and just shake with fear because I didn't know what my options were going to be. So you mentioned that there's not a full, there's a label, but not a diagnosis. Like uh, what, what, what does this term mean at this point? Yeah, so it's very vague. So I'll put my doctor's cap on here really quick. So the term was first coined back in 1996 by Dr. Stephen Bratman. And at that point, he was working with patients and stuff and kind of noticed this trend with diets, how people weren't necessarily anorexic or bulimic. They had some sort of other unhealthy relationship with food. And that's kind of how he coined the term back then. Well, unfortunately, there's been some studies into it, but it's still just such a vague, vague condition that they're trying to wrap their heads around because with an anorexic person, you can clearly say, oh, they're cutting their intake or with a person with bulimia, oh, they're purging after they eat. But with orthorexia, it's just a wide spectrum. You'll see people who, I just spoke with somebody in the bodybuilding industry and she said orthorexia runs rampant in that industry, but it's celebrated because they're eating healthy. They think they're doing what they need to do to achieve the goals that they want from a fitness perspective. But in actuality, they're letting food control them. So I think that's why it's taking so long to get that formal diagnostic criteria in place for orthorexia, just because it is so vague and it can affect, affect all of us in different ways. And did coming across the, the term, having, having a label, did that help you or did it not really matter? 
Yeah, that was a life-changing moment for me. I was sitting in my dining room one morning and it was about three, four months into recovery at this point. And I had been diagnosed with an unspecified eating disorder by my doctor, which to me just sounded made up. It sounded like when you're taking a test or something, a survey and you pick other or none of the above, like it just, it didn't really seem that serious. So I was just reading up on eating disorders and mental health as much as I could. And while reading a book, I stumbled across the term orthorexia early one morning in the dining room. And it was just like a light bulb moment for me. I just kind of jumped up. I was so excited because I realized this is what I'm battling. Like now that I know the enemy, I can take it head on. And it made me realize that this was bigger than me because for a long time I had questioned whether I had an eating disorder, even after receiving that diagnosis. But in that moment, when I found out what orthorexia was, everything changed. I imagine we can't even know how common this is because it can look like you're being healthy. It can be celebrated, like you said earlier. Yeah, because in my case, it was for a long time. People would say, oh, look at your amazing willpower. I would go out to to a restaurant, you know, people would say, oh, I'm going to be naughty and have dessert tonight. But I know Jason won't because he's so good on his diet. And it does. It gets applauded by so many people. And that's kind of what worries me. That's part of the reason why I launched this movement, just because... I myself had an extreme level of orthorexia. It got to the point where I had cut out basically all foods and I had just a very limited amount of food left that I would allow myself to eat, which caused a drastic weight loss. Well, in other people, I think they're controlled by orthorexia, but from a physical standpoint, we don't see it yet. Because from the outside looking in, oh, they're just really good on their diets. Oh, they're just trying to perform well in their sport. And we don't always realize what's going on beneath the surface. Are there any sort of warning signs that someone's quest for health has become unhealthy? One of the big warning signs that I talk about is when it starts to control your decisions. So when you see somebody start to kind of pull away from their group of friends, of course, given the pandemic, we've not had those social interactions and stuff with people. But in my case, I started skipping dinner invites from friends or I would go to a birthday party and leave early because I couldn't eat anything on the menu. In a work setting, I would pull away from potlucks and not take part in work events. And to me, that's a big red flag. When you see the diet itself kind of dictating what that person's going to do and how they're going to live their life, that's when you've got a problem. That's kind of when healthy eating goes from a good thing to a bad thing. Hmm. Is it rare for, it certainly seems rare for men to talk about eating disorders. Is it rare for men to have eating disorders? So surprisingly, about 10% of all eating disorders in the country are from men. And I wouldn't be surprised if that number is even higher just because of what you just said. Men don't really talk about it that much. So for me, I'm constantly asked, who did you look up to? Did you have any role models kind of in the media or anybody you could relate to? And there was no one. I could not think of one other guy out there, a famous guy that I could relate to, which is another reason why I started the blog, because I needed to get my story out there and make it known that men do suffer from eating disorders as well. Just from all across the world, I've been able to connect with people from Australia and the UK and here in the States. And it's just everywhere. There are guys that are battling eating disorders, but oftentimes they don't speak up. So why do you think that is? What's keeping men silent about this? There's such a stigma because growing up as a male, I kind of, the only emotion I felt like 
could be displayed was aggression or anger. If there was pain or there was hurt inside, I masked it as aggression or anger. And I think for a lot of guys, we're just expected to kind of be the fearless leaders and not have any fears or anxieties and insecurities but oftentimes we do. And the longer we let those kind of manifest and grow, they can turn into eating disorders or other destructive habits that we develop. Yeah. You know, for all the kind of the guideposts that say the teachings that, you know, we're not supposed to have fear, to me, it all proves that we're men are driven by fear. We're afraid of you knowing that I'm afraid of something. We have a shame about our emotions not only being aggressive, as you said. So true. So true. And I was reading a book the other day and saw a very interesting survey. And it was about how men and women have the same facial reactions in response to a certain event. However, women, their facial expressions will continue to grow more intense as time wears on, where men will immediately stop it. So to me, that just shows we both feel the same, man or woman, but it's how we respond to it is different. And men will hide it while women will tend to embrace it a bit more. Right, because it's our training and upbringing to, oh, there's an emotion, get rid of that. Whereas women might be some of that too, but they're willing to be with it longer, to feel it, to let it run its course. Right, right. And I mean, when's the last time, and I was guilty of this too, when's the last time you go out with your buddy to the bar to grab a beer and watch the game and then be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm having a rough day, like this happened and I'm, I'm insecure about this. Guys just don't do that. And uh, those are the conversations that we need to start having. Right, uh, couldn't agree more. So- it's your, you have your health scare, you you want to live longer, that starts this. Were there, you know, fears and insecurities before that? And was, did this go back, because you mentioned being overweight as a child, so was, was that rooted in, in another set of fears as well? Yeah, I don't think I would ever be able to completely pinpoint when things started going wrong. But as a child, being overweight, I was picked on a lot. And that made me feel very insecure. I learned at a young age that the way somebody's body looks is often how they're defined. My classmates could walk into the room on the first day of school, and they were a blank slate. I would walk into the classroom and I was already labeled as the fat kid. So I already kind of had that label attached to me that I couldn't escape. And that made me very insecure. It made me very self-aware of my body image moving forward. And then I had lost, I mentioned my dad passed away when I was 11 and then my mom passed away when I was 19 and I missed them terribly. But I put on that mask because I was too scared to let other people in on the pain because I thought it would make me look less like a man. And I had promised my dad when he was dying that I would be the man of the house. So I thought that meant I had to be strong. I had to be brave. So yeah, I hid things for a long time. I hid my insecurities and my self-doubts. In the aftermath of my mom's passing, our family fell apart. It was a very rough, rough estate battle, a very rough time for me. And I shouldered a lot of that blame for a long time just because I was so young. And of course, I was making irresponsible decisions. But in hindsight, I was just doing the best I could to survive. But yeah, and those insecurities just kind of festered for years. It's amazing how many times I hear this from other guys that like we're, we're asked to make this childhood vow, like, yeah, you're the man of the house and you're a prepubescent teen or, you know, maybe you're 16 and that's your old age is being put in charge of things. But, you know, be the man of the house and 
we all feel like we miss that somehow, but in, in unpacking masculinity and talking to more guys, we're actually doing what we were taught. We're burying our insecurities, we're denying our fears, and we're, I mean, that's, that's really what being the man of the house is. Start denying how you feel, kid. Yeah, exactly. You have to detach yourself from your emotions to be the man of the house. That seems to be the one requirement for that job interview. And so I, I was heavy as a kid too. And I always thought that I was just born fat. I thought I was just always heavy. And it wasn't until I was an adult and looking back at pictures and at around age five, my parents got divorced and I started getting molested by a neighbor. And that's when I see like, oh, I, that's when things change. That's when I, so again, it, everything, it was emotional. I looked to food for safety and security and to make me feel loved because I was scared of the rest of the world. But I, again, I didn't, I did not unpack that till I was like 30 years old. And it was all just, at least I wake up with assumptions about my own story that until you look at it, you don't realize it's not true. That's completely true. I didn't realize that the comments that the kids had said when I was a child impacted me until a couple months ago. So I had carried these things with me for 25 years, and I didn't even know it until I was months into recovery, and I wrote my story and saw it from an objective third-party point of view, and that's when it all clicked. I was like, poor child that I was, just being picked on for my weight, and instead of feeling insecure, I felt self-compassion. And that's when, that's when everything changed. So obesity keeps going up and up. And the more, you know, supposedly health conscious we get to society and create more products that say they're healthy, it doesn't seem to be doing anything. So in hindsight, with the compassion that you now have for your kind of younger self, is there anything you, you know, would offer to parents? Is there anything you would tell children that are battling eating issues and, and emotional issues? Is there anything you would say to them right now? Yeah, the first thing I would tell them is to speak up, that it's okay, that somebody will be there to listen. It might not be the first person they go to, it might not be the second person, but keep sharing your story, keep sharing your pain and your hurt, because when you do, it, it has less control over you. And that we're all born a certain way. Our bodies are meant to be the way that they are. And, you know, for me too, it was, I was born overweight, but I eventually lost the weight. That happens for a lot of kids. For other people, it's not, it doesn't go that way. But at the end of the day, our body is our one true home. It's the only thing that we really own in this world. So take care of it and love it. Even if other people might poke fun at it, it's yours and be proud of it. So that's what I kind of tell everybody is to just to be proud and to speak up. Cool. Awesome. And how do you navigate your choices now? Is Does it take like conscious effort? How does it unfold now that you've been getting help? Yeah, so it's, it's very tricky right now for me. I'm kind of at that point where I'm trying to decipher whether it's orthorexia telling me what I want to eat or if it's Jason telling me what, what I want to eat. So I kind of take it one meal, one bite at a time. I developed a system where it's kind of red light foods, green light foods, and yellow light foods, like a traffic light. And those red light foods, those were the ones that were off limits, like completely off limits. We're talking donuts and cakes and the good stuff like that. And the yellow foods were the ones that caused a little fear, but I could have them every now and then. So what I've done through recovery is 
at first I focused on the green foods. I introduced some of the yellow ones. Slowly, once I conquered the yellow category, I got into the reds and now I'm slowly starting to introduce those. So for me, the key has been to kind of take it gradually, to not just throw everything back on my plate all at once, because I think that would cause that fear and anxiety to come back. So the way I've been able to combat it is to just take those baby steps. And you know, if I can only eat half of the donut that I got, then at least I ate half of the donut that I got. That's more than I would have eaten a year ago. Hmm. I can't imagine the cognitive dissonance that trying to be healthy by countering what you thought was being healthy to prove I'm healthy and whole, I will eat foods that I think are unhealthy. Like what sort of a mind game is that for you? Oh, it's a crazy mind game because I'll still fight it to this day where I'll think, well, when I was orthorexic, everybody praised my ability to be so strict in the willpower I had or the way that I looked. So those thoughts still come across my mind. And it's just, it's a constant game of mindfulness. I just kind of have to breathe and be in the moment. And, you know, if I can't eat something, if the fear is just too much, the worst thing I could do is then beat myself up for it. So it's practicing that self-forgiveness and that self-compassion and just say, hey, you know, I wasn't able to do it today, but tomorrow I'll give it a try again. Because it is, my mind is constantly playing tricks on me because for at least five years while orthorexia was at its height, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought that was healthy. So learning that this new thing I'm doing is actually the healthy part is still, it takes some time. It's like learning to ride a bike or something. You've just got to practice, practice, practice. And we talked about the stigma. We talked about, you know, you not having something to look up to. This is really, you know, kind of new ground in the sense of, of it being labeled and identified and how to do that. So what made you want to be public? What made you want to share your journey here? Yeah, so I realized that there was such a need. For one, we did, there's just not enough discussion about eating disorders. When I reached out for help, my doctor didn't even know who to refer me to. He said, just go home and Google and look online for some mental health experts in the area. And that just shocked me because I was thinking if I had a stomach ache, you would send me to the gastroenterologist. Or if I was having a problem with my foot, I'd be off to the podiatrist. But here I am suffering with an eating disorder and you don't even know where to send me. So when I got home and I was looking for help, there was nothing out there for a guy with orthorexia. So, well, at that point, an unspecified eating disorder. So for months, I just kind of had to take that proactive approach and be very academic in my recovery and do things on my own. And I realized that I was kind of blazing a trail, that I could take the lessons that I had learned through my recovery and my journey and share them with other people to make their journeys easier. And I also realized that orthorexia is probably a lot more prevalent in society than we realize. And I wanted to be that voice. I wanted to be out there and help people reclaim their lives because I could see the difference it was making in my life every day. And I didn't want anybody else to have to go through what I went through. Hmm. Does anything stand out as a tool or technique, maybe a book or a program, anything you've done that helped you the most that you would recommend other people to look at? Yeah, so one book by uh, Dr. Libby, or uh, by a dietitian, Libby Parker, it's called Permission to Eat. And it was just an incredible resource for me to kind of relearn food again, where she talks about eating a pumpkin pie every day for a week straight because she likes pumpkin pie. And it just kind of helped me realize that those foods aren't bad, that there are no good or bad foods 
that all food is just food, it's energy. And that if we practice intuitive eating and we just allow ourselves to eat what we want, we're not always going to eat that pie every morning for breakfast. But, you know, if we restrict ourselves from that pie, we're going to want that pie every day. So her book really helped me practice intuitive eating. And to me, that's been a huge key to the recovery from orthorexia, as well as writing. Journaling and writing is just huge for me when it comes to mindfulness, like I was talking about earlier. It just gives me an opportunity to slow down, to recognize the emotions that I'm feeling and embrace them. And that just makes the fight easier for the eating disorder because orthorexia is a lot more than just food. There are a lot of underlying reasons why somebody would develop orthorexia or any type of eating disorder. So that writing and that journaling have just really been key parts of my recovery. You also have to do that inner work and deal with those underlying emotions. It's not just about retraining your your mental faculties about what's healthy and what isn't. Right, right. That's why the worst thing you can ever say to somebody who's got an eating disorder is just eat because it's not that easy. If it was that easy, of course we would have eaten, eaten, I'm making up a word here, eaten. So the big thing is to address those things that are going on beneath the surface. And for me, uh, like I said, I kind of approach my therapy I didn't know there was no guidebook for me. I had to just research things on my own. And the first therapist that I met with, who's still my therapist today, but he was like, I don't, I've never had a client before with an eating disorder. So he's like, I don't really know if I can help you with that. But I see you've got all this pain from losing your parents and the insecurities from your childhood. He's like, let's work on those. So that's what we worked on. Our first six months of sessions, we didn't really talk about the eating disorder at all. But through those open and honest conversations with him, I was able to tackle the eating disorder. Cool. Yeah, that's what I find working with different people for my own clients. The, the symptom that someone's dealing with, that's not really what you treat. It's that underlying hurt, those wounds, those traumas that were ignored, pasted over the, you know, the things we deny, put the mask on and just pretend didn't bother us. It still does. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I tell everyone I was wearing a mask long before the pandemic even started. Yeah. And fortunately, that's true for, for all men. I find that the biggest lie that, that men are really encouraged to, to carry forth, the mask we're all told to wear is that, got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. How you doing? Fine. Fine. How you doing? Good. Right? The, yep. the emotional range of anger you mentioned and men can peek at, okay. Yeah. Right. I'm angry or I'm okay. That, that's, that's the range. That's it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. There's a lot more to life and there's, oh. there's a lot more to food. There's a lot more to health. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So I know you've been, you've been sharing your journey as a blog, but I also you know, you've decided to release it as a book. Yeah. So Starving for Survival will be the name of my uh, first memoir coming out later this year. So I am really excited about that. It started as just kind of, I thought it was going to be a blog post and it started just kind of looking back at childhood before food became good or bad. And before I even associated it with body image or weight, and I just started writing and it just started flowing out of me. And through this writing process, I've been able to recognize events in my life that contributed to the eating disorder that I had completely forgotten about, that weren't at the forefront of my mind. And I just hope that this is the type of book that all men can relate to. Even if you don't have an eating disorder, it just kind of dives into those stigmas and those stereotypes 
stereotypes around mental health and the masculinity, the, the idea of masculinity that we've got right now as a society. It just questions all of that. So I hope that this is the type of book that can spark the discussions that we need to have and open some people's eyes to the way that we really need to be living our lives compared to the way we have been living our lives for so long. Awesome, yeah. It is always important to ask questions. Not just, you know, follow the herd, follow your your dad, follow, you know, whatever you're following, ask, is this worth following? <laughs> Do I enjoy following this? Is this is this benefiting me, right? No, there, there really isn't good or bad innately in, in food or in thoughts or in experiences. It's, I find it's, does this serve me or doesn't it? Right, exactly, exactly. The one thing I work on and I attend a men's mindfulness group every week. And one thing that we've made a rule of is that there are no positive or negative emotions. So it kind of plays right into that. There is no good or bad. We often, I'm the type of person too, I look at everything black or white often. So I'm starting to embrace that gray area and realize that I've just got to ask what's going on with me right now. And if I'm feeling bad, that's okay. And I'm going to embrace it, but that doesn't have to be a negative thought. So I think, yeah, it's, it's huge for us to just stop looking at the extremes and find that middle ground. Yeah. All emotions do serve us. They're giving us feedback. It's our internal navigational system and, you know, a so-called negative emotion. All right, well, this is, I'm feeling bad because what I'm thinking about, what I'm doing, like, what is this information telling me? What, not just, oh, I don't like it. I'll ignore it, hide it, deny it, right? Be willing to feel it. You know, the, the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned growing up, when I'm willing to feel whatever emotion shows up in the moment, it passes so much quicker and easier than when I deny it and hide it and say, this is the right time and I'm not supposed to feel this way. I find that our emotions want to pass through us quickly and easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like that moldy apple or something that you've got sitting in the fridge. The longer you let it sit in there, the more it's going to grow and grow and grow. But if you just toss it out, it's gone and it's over with. Yeah, that's kind of the way I live my life now. And that's why the journaling and the writing have been key for me, because that's kind of how I can express those emotions and get those out. And once they're out in the open, they're no longer just stuck in here growing. Right. Having our own thoughts, those are sort of the questions that don't serve us. Like, why do I suck? And, you know, ask better questions that don't just feed the uh, chasing your own tail in your head. But yeah, I, I, you know, journaling, speaking out loud, talking to someone, therapy, uh, a men's group, all those ways are getting our worst thoughts out of us. And when we're brave enough to do that, we usually realize they're not so horrible. We're not this unique monster of a human being. <laughs> like Our worst thoughts are had by every other human being. Right. You realize you're not alone because it's very easy to always think you're alone. And that's one thing I've really enjoyed with with the blog that I've created is that I realized that there's a whole community out there that feel the same way that I do. And everybody else feels the same way they, that I do, too. It's just that level of what we want to share. And some of us share a little bit more than others. And uh, I kind of laugh because we oftentimes as a society, we poke fun at the people who we call oversharers, especially on social media. And if you ask me now, you can't overshare. You can never share too much because whatever is inside deserves to be on the outside too. So just let it out. Yeah, I find anyone, I've said this often, authenticity and vulnerability are superpowers that too many men don't take advantage of. So I find everyone going, oh, that's oversharing. Well, you're just not willing to share. So everything seems like oversharing to you. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. If you're if you're open and honest with yourself and people in your life, then you can't overshare. That's not a thing. Like 
you're being too human, Jason. Just, you better stop it. Like, what? <laughs> like, doesn't work <laughs> yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't work like that. So, and that's, that, that's the one thing too, that it, as soon as we were talking about it, it reminded me just of my therapy sessions. Therapy is a wonderful tool for people that need it. I recommend therapy for everyone because I think we all have things that we could talk about that we don't even know we could talk about. But the key is to be open and to be honest and to be authentic. Because if you only let a part of yourself out in whatever situation you're in, it's not going to get better. You need to just be willing to be vulnerable and to be authentic. And it, trust me, it was scary as hell for me. But once I did it, I was able to get my life back and to gain that love and that self-compassion. So what's been the reaction? How has your experience been since you've been sharing your story with the world? Oh, it's been incredible. It is the most therapeutic experience, which it's amazing because I started this to help other people. And I didn't realize that in the process, I'd be helping myself. But I've been able to make some wonderful connections, not just within the eating disorder community, but within the men's mental health and the mental health uh, community in general. Like when I started the blog, I thought, okay, I'll talk about orthorexia and that'll be about it. I didn't realize that there was so much else to the conversation, to the discussion. And it's been a wonderful experience just getting to meet people, getting to meet professionals and enlighten them on my situation. I get to kind of take things we read about in books and illustrate it and show what it's like in real life. And it's just been an inspiring and an empowering experience to launch the blog and to make the connections and to just get out there. It really makes me feel like I've taken the lessons that I've learned through my tough times and maybe making it just a little bit easier for somebody else out there. Yeah, beautiful. Love it. And all this feels like it's part of the, another initiative I see you're part of, this Strong Men Talk. So tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Strong Men Talk was an idea that just came to me one weekend, and I realized that the strongest man in the room is the one who's open and honest and vulnerable. It has nothing to do with weights. So you can bench press 500 pounds for all I care, but if you're not willing to share your heart and your emotions, then you're not the strongest man in the room. And a photo shoot around Denver here where I just kind of held a sign up and just said some, some phrases about how I feel, that I cry sometimes, that I have insecurities, that I battle with anxiety. That's all it takes. You don't have to justify your emotions. You don't have to justify why you feel that way. Just say you feel that way. And that's why I launched Strong Men Talk, which will be coming up the first week of June, between June 1st and June 5th, since it is Men's Health Month. I wanted men out there to just post a picture of themselves, maybe saying something or doing something that just shows strong men talk, that we have emotions, that we feel. I just kind of hope it floods the feed. So on Twitter, or Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want to, just open up and just give us one little insight into your life. Just let us know that you feel that you have emotions and strong men talk. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, it's very much the what drove me to, to create real men feel and like, well, what if being a real man, you saw someone crying and like, what a real man that is. So again, so what a strong man that is. And yeah, we've, we've got to redefine masculinity because the old, the old mask and the weight of that, the box that we want to put that it wants to put us in, it's killing men. Right. 
Right. And we sit at such a crucial point, too, as we start to emerge from the pandemic. This is our opportunity to rewrite those social norms as we start to reconnect with each other again. And I just think we have an incredible opportunity. I worry that mental health problems will probably increase as a result of the last year and a half or so. But we also have that opportunity to change the discussion and to make help more available and to just be there for one another and create that community that we all want. So that's why I hope that Strong Men Talk kind of takes off because social media can be full of a lot of negative things, but we can use it for good too. And we can use it to show that, you know, men do feel and that masculinity, it's time. It's time to redefine it and break down those rules, stereotypes, and stigmas because I'm done with those. Yeah. Beautiful. Awesome. I love it. So Jason, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, find out what you're up to? Yeah, so I've got my blog, orthorexiabites.com, and then I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and everything is orthorexiabites. Feel free to look me up on there. I'm constantly posting, constantly sharing my story with someone, hearing stories. That's one thing I love, too. I just love it when somebody reaches out to me and just shares their story because I just feel that instant connection. Regardless of what you've battled, I just spoke with somebody the other day who is overcoming a drug addiction, and we connected on so many different levels because we both kind of had that addiction mindset. We had something in our lives that had control of us. And it was all because of these underlying emotions that we held on to for so long. And I just love it when people reach out to me and share those stories because it's just, it's that community that I didn't think was possible at the height of my illness. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. It's so empowering to hear your story and to hear guys connecting and discovering what I discovered too. Being of service feels good. Like helping others heal heals you as well. Yeah. And that, that's something that was never, that was not mentioned in any school program I was ever a part of. Nope. Nope. That was never mentioned at the school I went to either. So I learned the more you hit it in, the stronger you were. So yeah, we need to change that and we need to change that now. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to get perception and reality back in sync with men living from their hearts, with being willing to feel, being willing to share, being willing to open up because yeah. Being human is a wonderful thing. Right. Denying our humanity it kills us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can attest to that. Believe me, I know a guy. I just think of what an amazing world we could have if we all just opened our hearts. And it sounds very cliche, but I've seen the difference it's made in my own life. And I can guarantee it could make a difference in a lot of other people's lives. Beautiful. Well, Jason, thanks for sharing your story here with us. Thanks for sharing it on the blog, in the book, and with via Strong Men Talk. Because strong men do talk and real men feel. And we all need more guys willing to do that. Step up, open up, check in, ask somebody how they're doing. When someone asks you how you're doing, don't just say, okay. Like, really answer the question. Right. And if you ask somebody how they're doing and you get that response, ask again. That's what I tell everybody now. Keep asking until you until you can get something out of them. Yeah, I always do. <laughs> how are you doing? Really? Yeah. And that's the way to get <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jason. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. Wherever you're listening to Real Men Feel, please subscribe, share this with somebody, post a review or a comment. You can reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And you can now can directly support the show. There's a link in the bottom of the show notes allowing you to give as little as 99 cents to sustain this podcast, help it reach more men, help change the world, help men open themselves up, live from their hearts, ah, and make the world a better place for all of us. Until next time. Be good to yourself.